So good evening. <coughs> for those of you for whom it's your first retreat, well, really for everyone, but especially if you're new, you've just about finished your third full day of practice. Take a moment and think back to when you were first arriving on the retreat, how you felt. You may have been excited, nervous, whatever it was for you. Think back to what your first day was like. And now, you know, just notice how it is now for you. For my honeymoon, this was a number of years, several years ago, but uh, my wife and I, it was her idea, we went to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So this is up in Alaska. You know, they talk about the drilling. It's on the Arctic Ocean. And we had a 12-day wilderness canoe trip where they fly you in on a bush plane, you land on a gravel bar. So that was pretty cool. Just the landing on a gravel bar in a bush plane is pretty exciting, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> and we had these inflatable canoes. It was a guide. And then you go down this Whitewater River, and then 12 days later on a different gravel bar, a plane lands and you know pulls you out. I mean, you were way out there. And I've actually, we've gone, went back a second time. I've done this a couple of times. I've been gone to the Arctic Ocean and some of the state at some Eskimo villages. And so it was really a, an adventure. So first night there, <laughs> we were sleeping in the tent. Went down to 13 degrees. Middle of the night, I had to pee. <laughs> okay. Pressure. Pressure, unpleasant, unpleasant. <laughs> I ain't getting out of the sleeping bag. <laughs> okay, how long can I do this? <laughs> more pressure, more pressure. <laughs> really unpleasant. Finally, I was weighing in my mind which was going to be the most unpleasant, getting out or having to pee. And it was pretty obvious I was going to have to get out. So 13 degrees, middle of the night. You know, it's a whole, anyway, went through all that, got back in. I'm freezing. I can't get warm. And I, and I say to my wife, great idea for a honeymoon, Kathy. Great idea. Now, there was a lot going on there, but I didn't have mindfulness about it. I did before it got intense. Sense contact, pressure. Unpleasant Vedana. Craving to get rid of this. <laughs> and of course, then the reaction out of it. Right? So that's an example, right, of, of how this craving, which is either wanting or the aversion to get rid of the unpleasant, the the craving comes can come out of the pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone, right? There are other kinds of craving that are... So I'm overlapping Jason's uh, talk a little bit uh, to start tonight. Other kinds of craving, and as far as I can see, they're not so clearly connected, at least so obviously connected to the Vedana. They seem to have a life of their own. I, there must be some of the pleasant or unpleasant in there, but it's not so obvious. And I'm thinking of a time several years ago, about three or four years ago, when my daughter, who was a college student at the time, her car died. And I had a perfectly good car, about 10-year-old car, so I gave her my car, and we decided to get a, get a new car. So we decided to get a Prius. And that was back when, I don't know how it is now, but you know, you had these six-month waiting lists to get the Prius. It was like the hot car and all that. So we're on the list. I started craving a Prius. I was noticing him everything, everywhere. I really wanted a Prius. I mean, I was just craving. I don't know what I thought was going to happen when I got it. Was I going to like, you know, just go into some sublime state of perfect fulfillment and bliss? All, but the craving was there, and it was just, and my mind was kind of obsessed about getting the Prius. And, um, you know, before that, I was perfectly happy with the car I had. Now I'm craving. Finally, the Prius comes. 
And after the first few days of the elation of it and things settled down, I mean, even to this day, we still have the Prius. I really like the car a lot. I would get another one. I would appreciate it. But you, I just, I wasn't any happier. I just went back to just kind of my normal state of consciousness, just my normal, regular place. Only the craving was gone, which was a huge relief. <laughs> That's what had happened. So, and it seemed to have a life of its own. How many desires have we? How many desires have you fulfilled in your life? A lot. All of us. Right? Has it ever done it for you? I mean, in the big sense. No. Fulfilling desires. Now we want to be clear about it. Certainly, can bring a satisfaction of pleasure in the moment. I mean, we're not going to deny that. But what happens? That momentary satisfaction goes away. All it does is condition the mind for more craving. And we're just going round and round in this circle. And we keep falling for it. We keep thinking that if we can just set our life up just right, it's all going to fall together. We may not know how. It might be this vague kind of nebulous sense but we know that if we can figure it all out and just get the pieces to all to fall together, and it's not far away, it's just there almost, and we're going to just, it's nirvana or whatever. This is a quote from the second great Taoist master, Zhuang Tzu. The first great master was Lao Tzu. And um, I'm doing this from memory, so it's not exact, but it's pretty close. He said, I cannot tell if what people consider happiness is happiness or not. All I know is when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away, headlong, grim and obsessed, caught in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change direction. All the while, they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. So, I don't know how that lands for you, you can see. It lands for me. What is it that we're all doing, every one of us? We, have a, we all share lots of things in common. One of the things that we all share in common is, it's going to sound silly when I say it, because it's so obvious, We're all trying to have more pleasant experiences as much of the time as we can. (laughs) And we're all trying to have fewer unpleasant experiences as much of the time as we can. Right? Anybody not doing that here? I doubt it. I'm I'm not excluding myself. We're all human beings. I think it's deeply... You know, if you you take a single-cell bacteria and whatever stimulus they like, like if they don't like light and shine the light, they'll kind of go away, right? It's just part of being a living being. So it's not judging us about it. It's just naming what it is to be a human being. Right? Nobody here is trying to get less of what you want in life and more of what you don't want in life. Right? We don't have to stop doing that. I don't know if we will stop doing that. What is it that fuels that? That's the craving that Jason was talking about last night. That's what's fueling it. But that's what's happening, part of being a human being, right? And if you say you weren't doing that, people would think you were crazy. Of course you want to set your life up to look how you want. So it's not that we aren't going to take care of ourselves or head our lives in the way it should be in a wholesome, wise, and skillful way to take care of ourselves. There's the story of the great Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah, and he was talking about one of his young monks and a storm. This is in the book, I think it's Food for the Heart, which is one of my favorite books, highly, highly recommended uh, book. It's transcriptions of his talks. And he, I think it's there, and he says, uh, a storm came and blew on the kuti, the little huts where the monks 
and the nuns lived, it blew down part of the roof and caved in and it was exposed to the sky and the monk didn't fix his house, his kuti up, and so he would just move, you know, as the sun would change, he would shift, and he was just living in this half-fallen-down roof. Someone reported it to Ajahn Chah, and he went to the young monk and said, uh, told him, hey, you've got to take care of yourself, fix the roof. And the, the young monk said back something like, you know, I don't know what you want from me. You say, let go of clinging. I let go of clinging to this extent, and now you're still criticizing me. And then Ajahn Chah reported saying, that he told him back, he said back, well, why do you even move out of the sun when the sun comes around the rain? <laughs> and then Ajahn Chah said, Ajahn Chah said, some people can be so stupid like this. <laughs> of course we have to take care of ourselves. Buddhism is not telling us to become passive blobs. Right? There's another story I love from the Hindu tradition where, um, I've told this, maybe in this retreat before, some of you have heard me say it, where... Um, someone's walking up the hill and someone comes running down the hill yelling, mad elephant, mad elephant, get out of the road, mad elephant. And the person just calmly says, God will protect me. And then the elephant comes and tramples the person and kills him. And he wakes up in heaven and he says to God, I thought you would protect me. And God said, I did. I was running down the road yelling, mad elephant, mad elephant, get out of the road. So, of course, we want to take care of ourselves. But what the Dharma is asking us to do is, in the midst of doing the best we can, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to set our lives how we want it to be, moment by moment, you get what you get. This is the dukkha that that Mary Grace was talking about. Life has an unreliable and uncertain quality. You cannot completely control it. Maybe you can't control it at all. I I don't know. But um, certainly we know that we're trying our best. Sometimes you don't get what you want and sometimes you get what you don't want. The question that the Dharma is asking us is, what are you going to do with you get what you get in the moment? And it's asking us to make a shift so that our well-being is not 100% tied up in circumstances, but it starts to be more about how are we relating to whatever's happening. And so this grand experiment that we're all involved in is, can we find the peace, the freedom, the liberation in the midst of the way things are? Being respectful of the times when it is too much for us. Our ability to be at peace with whatever's happening is too much. Another story I've, I've told many times is um, it was terrible at the time, but it really ended up making a great story. Uh, when I was brand new in my practice, some of you have heard this, I was 18 or 19 years old uh, in a Hindu yoga tradition when I first started my practice. I've been doing this practice for a while. And... Uh, <coughs> went to get a tooth filled. They went to give me the Novocaine. I said to the dentist, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was so idealistic and naive. I didn't know. And I actually said, I, I don't remember much. I only remember two things. I remember saying to the dentist clearly, <laughs> I can't get enough. that's okay. Don't numb me up. I'm just going to stay present with whatever excuse <laughs> arise and pass away. (laughs) The only other thing I remember is when he started to drill, the words went in my hell, in my mind. Oh, it was hell, went in my mind. You've really done it this time. (laughs) I actually did get the tooth filled without a Novocaine. I've done it. So, let me tell you. (laughs) No wisdom. (laughs) <laughs> no learning. It was way past my ability to do it. wasn't, right? I was like this. I don't remember why I didn't ask the dentist. You know, I could have just stopped him. Right? I could have just said, you know... <laughs> yeah, it better numb me up. He would have just done it. He would have probably been relieved. So I can't remember why I didn't. But anyway, so... Yeah. Or maybe, you know, these... 
that young macho attitude, looking for the toughest test you can find in those days. I'm fortunately well past that in my older age. <laughs> so, um, I want to be respectful. You don't have to go to that extreme. I want to be very respectful of, of what it means to take care of ourselves and being respectful that, of course, there's experiences w- for which the answer isn't be with it, that we need to fix it or bring down the intensity, and for which, if we're not able to do that, we're going to suffer. Right? We want to acknowledge that. But what we're doing is expanding the range of experiences, pleasant and pleasant, for which we can be present and awake and clear and equanimous to contain more and more. Right? So the idea is, uh, I just wanted to say that, but we are all so far in the other direction that we could do a lot to learn to really try to stay present and work with things because I think we tend to be out of balance here. Just think how it is for you on retreat here and how hard it is. It's It's striking to me how hard it can be to sit quietly in a room in a comfortable posture and be present with ourselves. It's striking. It might be scary and horrifying when we see how out of control our minds are, or can be. Now, of course, it can be profoundly inspirational and beautiful, some of these meditative states, if you haven't touched them, that that we can open to. And, of course, they have an important place, too. And um, so it can be, you know, there's places of deep beauty that we can touch into also. But we all know also um, that that it can be quite difficult just to sit quietly and be with ourselves. Um, some of you know I did a very long retreat, a year-long retreat. Um, this was a number of years ago, and I'd been sitting already for more than 30 years, so I'd been in a lot of retreats. I kind of knew what it was about, but when I went on this, first, I'd never said anything this long before. Said a few months before. So I was pretty excited. Went to this place called the Forest Refuge in Barris, Mary, Massachusetts, which is just, this is a heaven realm of retreat centers. The facilities are gorgeous, you have your own room. It's new. Good food. You're on your own schedule in your own space. There's no bells. It's just It, it was just fantastic. I got there that night. I'm excited. I, was, I get up the next morning. This is great. I'm going to get into all these meditative states. That was my craving mind, my deluded mind. And, I, and all of a sudden, this year was looming. And it just hit me like, this is my life sitting in this bare room. <laughs> I went into, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised. I'm actually having some emotion coming up in this moment. It was so painful. And I went into this deep despair. And what was I going to do? Like, I couldn't go home. I had told all my friends, I'm going off for a year. <laughs> you know, the big meditator, <laughs> Dharma teacher... <laughs> wanted to crawl home with my legs with my tail between my legs I couldn't bear it too much to bear I lay on the bed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and I thought what am I going to do what am I going to do it turned out the beauty and the profundity was not the meditative states I learned this over time I thought that was going to be... Those come, of course, on retreats. We all know that, too. So, yes, all that comes of trivial importance. The profundity was... You know, on a retreat like this, it may not feel like it, but even if you're in hell, you can tough it out for five days. You can't tough it out for a year. Unless you're going to leave, it forces you to let go into the experience so deeply, to meet it head on, and to be present with it and to let go of the contentiousness, your struggle with the way things are. This is pointing to this, what we're going to talk about tonight, which is the uh, third noble truth, truth which I'm coming to in a few moments about the cessation of suffering. So take a moment right now. I would like to invite you. If you're not already doing so, 
let your mindfulness connect into your body and keep your eyes open or closed. Just notice there might not be much going on or there may be some experience there. What's happening in your mind, in your heart? I also invite you to notice not only what is your experience, how are you relating to what's happening right now for you? Your experience is happening. It's always happening. Can we find the peace or the equanimity? There's many adjectives that are used with this. If there's a place of struggle, can we let go a little about it? Maybe the answer is no. I'm not trying to tell you your answer. Look and see. If there's a place that's not able to let go around what's happening in your experience, bring some acceptance to that place in you. The mind that's contracted and suffering, can we just, okay, this is, this is, I think Mary Grace was using this, you know, this is how it is. So tonight, you know, we've been talking, the theme, as we've said, is the Four Noble Truths. And so um, tonight we'll be on the Third Noble Truth. So just a short recap. The fr- Mary Grace <coughs> talked on the first night about the First Noble Truth of, we use the word dukkha, but as she explained, we use the word suffering as a translation. It means a lot more than that. It, it, uh, I would say if you had to pick one word, this is just my own take I think I would use uh, unreliable or unsatisfactory. And I think Mary Grace may have used one or more of those. Of course, suffering pain is unsatisfactory, but it includes even uh, getting what you want is dukkha because it doesn't last. And she talked about, right? And it's the clinging that creates the problem. That's the first noble truth. And it uses this poly word. You don't have to know poly, but I'm going to come back to it in a few moments because there's an important concept here. It's upadana that's translated as clinging. So we'll come back to that. That's the first noble truth, is that there's dukkha, and really the suffering is the clinging. Second noble truth that Jason was talking about last night then was what causes the clinging? What conditions the mind to do that? That's the craving, and that's what he talked about, and I was spending some time recapping tonight. That's the craving. The third noble truth is very simple. It says, what is the cessation? It uses this Pali word, naroda, which means, it doesn't say nirvana or the Pali nibbana. It just says cessation, naroda. What is the cessation of dukkha? It is just the cessation of craving. Very, very simple. I mean, it's not simple to do, right? That's what the, that's what we're all... And tomorrow night, um, I was going to say this is what you've been waiting for tonight, the cessation, but actually what we're waiting for to, is for Bob to tell us how to do it tomorrow night. And that would be... <laughs> 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 that would be a, that's the coup de grace, right? The, 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 the fourth noble truth. But the Buddha is actually saying there is an ending to any problem to any dis-ease to any suffering and and there's a cessation and it's through the cessation of craving so we want to explore that a little bit according to tradition the third discourse the third dharma talk that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment is known as the fire sermon it's, it's actually, the, the, the name of it is, is actually the way of speaking of things as if being on fire. It's a, using fire as a metaphor. Jason pointed to it briefly last night. He said sometimes we use things, fire, this image of things burning. And in that, the Buddha says, all of our experience, he talks about all our sense, sense doors. He goes through seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, body sensations all experiences in the mind. Everything is burning with three fires, greed, hatred, and delusion. 
The experiences are not inherently on fire. They just are what they are. So if it feels like your knee is on fire and a knife is stabbing into it and it feels like a burning, it's not what the Buddha is talking about. That's just what's happening. It's unpleasant Vedana. Burning, burning, tearing, tearing, stabbing, stabbing, whatever. The fires he's talking about is the problem we make about that. The greed, hatred, and delusion, the greed that's a euphemism for the want. Greed and hatred are both craving. Greed is the craving, the wanting, pleasant experiences. It's just they call it greed. Hatred just means aversion. It's not the way we typically mean I hate you, but it's just, we say it's a euphemism, but it's also a craving to get rid of or push away. That's the greed and hatred. And the delusion is really the root cause. We don't see these truths that we're talking about here. We keep thinking that we believe it deep. It's not thinking. It's deeply conditioned in us that the way to happiness is through having the right set of experiences, not in letting go of the craving in relationship to what's actually happening. That's the delusion. So we're on fire with that. And one way, and so the idea is to put out the fire. That's the Nibbana. It's talked about this way sometimes, Nirvana, which means extinguishing. It's extinguishing these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. The word that's used for fuel for a fire is upadana. That's the word I just said meant uh, clinging. Upadana has two meanings. It means clinging and it means the fuel for the fire. And the way I suggest thinking about it is not that it can have one meaning or another. It's the same thing. That that burning is the fuel of the clinging. It's the same thing. Of, of the uh, Right? And in fact, a better translation, I would say, so if you read the translations in the Pali text, this is a little aside. Um, it's usually translated, the five aggregates, it, it sums up the first noble truth, the five aggregates, that's just a way of deconstruct five ways of deconstructing our being, our minds and bodies into five parts of the mind and the body. It's not important what those five parts, you know, perception and feeling and consciousness and, you know. Five aggregates of clinging or subject to clinging are dukkha. I would reword it. The five burning masses of fuel are dukkha. Five burning masses of fuel. Your mind and your body on fire is dukkha. Put out the fire. No dukkha. Are we really on fire? That's a pretty stunning statement. Pretty strong. Well, let's look into our own experience and see. How much of your thoughts, if you haven't noticed, take some time to notice sometimes. What percentage? I think Jason may have talked about this last night too. He did. What percentage of your thoughts are some are worrying or planning or this happened or what am I going to do about this and figuring it out? How am I in judging, comparing? When I, you know, when you, when we, it, it can be shocking to see what percentage of our thoughts are some version of, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? How am I going to be okay? It's all about me, me. Am I going to be okay? Just check out for yourself. It's not for me to tell you what's going on in your mind. When you hear these teachings, you need to apply it to your own experience and see if how it lands for you. So see how it lands. But the Buddha is, you know, we should listen if it's the Buddha. Right? <laughs> he says, when you really look closely, we're on fire. <clears throat> I worked from. I lived here in Santa Cruz for about thirty years. Actually, I was a. Some of you know. I've known for a long time, but um, many people I don't know. I was very involved with this sangha for a number of years, 
And um, I still, I, I live up in Oakland now, so I don't get down here very much, but I still feel deeply spiritually connected with this group and still have friends here and love to come here. And I used to, when I lived here, I commuted over the hill. I was an engineer for many years to Silicon Valley, worked for semiconductor companies. So I was commuting, you know, it was an hour a day each way. And uh, for a number of years, I was uh, miserable commuting, just miserable. It's taking up all two hours a day. It's ruining my life. <coughs> miserable. I'm a tough case, so it has to hit me over the head a few times. It's just unfortunate, but sometimes that's how my mind works. Finally, after a number of years, you'd think I would have gotten this. I've been a meditator for all these years and everything. Struggling. I finally realized, you know, commuting's not bad at all. I'm just sitting here in the car. <laughs> I can put on, the, I like to listen to NPR. I can put on any music I want. I can adjust the temperature whenever I want. I can keep food in the car if I get hungry. It's really, being here is kind of pleasant. It's only because I thought I was supposed to be someplace else. That was the only problem. Totally created in my own mind, the suffering. And so that cliche of be here now, when I finally let go, this is that extinguishing of the craving. What a relief. It wasn't ruining my life. I was kind of enjoying riding in the car. It's unfortunate that it took all those years to realize what was right in front of me all the time. It's not, it wasn't even unpleasant Vedna. Only my mind was unpleasant Vedna. Have you ever had a I know you've had what I'm about to say. Ever had a meditation when your body hurts, mind's a mess? It's just bad meditation. And then you hear, and before you even move, the mind just goes, and you just feel such a relief. You haven't even moved. That's an interesting place to notice how much of your suffering was created in your mind. It actually wasn't about your body. It was just your, how you were relating to the experience. The mind was contracted around it. And we can see when that craving, the cessation of this third noble truth, when it lets go, what a relief it is. What a relief it is. When we let go of the struggle with the unpleasant, it's not going to magically turn into pleasant. You know, the swords that are poking you are not going to turn into flowers, petals. It still is what it is. But as Mary Grace talked about, and this was such an important discourse on the two darts or the two arrows, you know, just to remind you, right? Someone asked the Buddha, what's the difference between an ordinary person and an enlightened person? And both the ordinary and the enlightened person still feel all the pains and whatever it is to be a human being. It's like being shot by an arrow. You still feel it. The enlightened person's not making a problem about that, though. The ordinary person, in addition to the suffering of the experience itself, adds a whole other la layer of their fight with it. It's like shooting yourself with the second arrow. And the enlightened person, well, they only get shot once. <laughs> Actually, that doesn't sound that great. That's what enlightenment is. I just realized it really is all duty. <laughs> Here's a quote from um, Hari Das. Who is he still alive? Yeah. So he's still around. So he was my second teacher when I lived in Santa Cruz in the very early seventies. I was in the Hindu-oriented yoga world from 1970 up until kind of the mid to late 70s and I kind of moved over to the Buddhist world. Uh, it was actually Ram Dass and Stephen Levine who were living in Santa Cruz at the time who got me in, over into the Buddhist world. Is this a quote from Hari Das? Once again, it's, it's from memory. So um, it's uh, not exactly, but it's pretty close. He says, we live in our entire existence from this point of view. <coughs> Seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy and avoiding those that make us unhappy. But even when the situation seems ideal, circumstances seem ideal, 
there was always this nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately change. In truth, we are never totally at peace. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. And he goes on to say that spirituality is not about stoicism or self-denial. It means learning to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings rather than from the point of view of dilemma. And that's what I want to spend the rest of the talk about. I think that's another way of saying the cessation of craving. But he's such much more beautiful. So what would the end of tanha craving look like? Now sometimes people think, well, I don't know, that sounds like it might be kind of, it would be sort of numb or gray. You know, I need some passion in my life. I need some <clears throat> excitement, right? I, I don't want to just end. Matter of fact, they sell pills to, and you see them on TV, right? These whatever, male whatever, <laughs> increased desire, like you're buying, you know, it's like, that is so antithetical to what we're talking about. <laughs> There's a whole industry out there that depends upon convincing you that, that craving is not only a good thing, but you want to get as much of it as you can. I invite you to investigate that for yourself. <laughs> so, what would it look like to come to a cessation of craving? Well, we can kind of, unless we're in the experience, we can all experience it in a moment. Every one of us have moments where we're the mind and heart are at peace. We're not caught in hate, greed, hatred, or delusion. We may not even notice those moments. They might just feel kind of ordinary and slip by. Problem is, is that the conditioned patterns of our mind are such that when the right causes and conditions come together, whatever it is that catches us will... Right? So the seeds of potential craving are still there. But we can still... What would, what would it look like? Some of the adjectives that are used are to be um, dispassion, disenchantment, Detachment. Well, let's take a look at that. What does dispassion mean? It means not be caught in the passions. So you might not think that's a good idea. Have you ever been in love? Anybody here? I have. It's been a long time. I'm older. I've been married. I haven't experienced it for a long time. I've been in love a few <laughs> times. Wasn't that great? Is she going to call me? Should I call her? Why did she say that? Maybe I should say this. Is this going to work out? <laughs> a few moments of ecstasy and coming together interspersed with long, interminable periods of hell. <laughs> Maybe you have a different experience. <laughs> Disp- when we're in passion... <coughs> And, and, and But in any case, it's a real difference after the first few weeks or first few months when things settle down, if you're still in the relationship. It doesn't mean you can't have any chemistry or, you know, it's, it hasn't, you know hopefully it hasn't gone, you know, just completely died. But, but, that, um, but that you can, um, it's a different level. It's more satisfying. It's deeper. It's more smoothed out. The mind's at peace. You're connecting in a more stable way. And in fact... What can happen is, this shows you how the passions can delude the thinking. Sometimes, if you ever, I've had this happen, the things that you used to find endearing are now annoying. <laughs> right? That can happen. We don't see clearly in the passions, but we want it, right? So dispassion is not to go numb, but it's just to be clearer. Disenchantment. Normally that has a negative connotation, like, oh, I'm disappointed Disenchantment, to not be enchanted. What is it to be enchanted? You know, in the fairy tales, they put a spell on you, you're enchanted. <laughs> you can't see clearly. You're in, a, you're in a, seriously, right? You're in a altered state or world. You're not seeing reality. To be disenchanted is just means you're, then, then the spell's broken and the, whatever in the fairy tale and you're back to reality. That's all we're talking about. Seeing things 
for what they really are. Detachment. Now, detachment or non-attachment, it, it's, it, I think it's a great word. It's used a lot. But we want to be careful that we don't take it to have the connotation of disconnected or disassociated. We are all hardwired to attach. Newborns must bond and attach with the primary caregiver, with a mother or one or more, or they won't thrive. It's in our DNA. It's in our cells, our bones. What is it we're doing when we sit here to meditate? Regardless of your exact practice, each of us we're not, may not all be doing the same practices, but with some form of bringing our attention inward, strengthening the, the we call it the concentration, the stability or undistractedness of the mind, strengthening the mindfulness and what we call clear knowing of what's happening, and bringing that power to our own minds and bodies. We're connecting deeply with ourselves. We're not disassociating. We're not detaching. It's not that we don't want to. We want to connect. We don't want to cling. So to make it, just to make it clear on the distinction, and I've been getting a few laughs here, uh, but if you laugh, it's fine. I'm actually not going for a laugh here, but it's okay if you laugh. Uh, if 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 I tell my wife I'm detached from her, I don't think she's going to like that. If I tell her I'm not clinging to her, she probably appreciates that. You get the difference? This is what we're talking about, about a place that rests at peace, that's clear and awake. We actually experience our lives more than ever because we're actually present. We're not busy figuring it out and relating and reacting. We're just here with our lives. We feel it all more than ever. We're waking up to the experience of our lives. One teacher once said to me, well, it's sort of a good news, bad news situation. You're going to feel all the pleasant more. Bad news. You're going to feel all the unpleasant more. My wife once came back from about a four or five month retreat. She'd been a meditator for many years. and She came back and I said to her, how was your retreat? First thing she said. First thing out of her mind, mouth. I, I don't know if this meditation is all that great. Or all it's cut out to be. I said, are you serious? Are you joking? Are you kind of what's, she said, I mean, do I have to feel everything? Do I have to experience everything? There were things in there that I didn't want to know was in there. So we're going to wake up to our lives more Places of incredible beauty we may not have known was in there. Places that are not so beautiful, maybe you didn't want to know about. (coughs) But we're cultivating the equanimity that can ride the waves and keep the place of peace and stay present. We can stop the judging and comparing. We can find the place, as Hari Das says, of can we come to live more deeply as free, conscious, and loving beings? That's the end of the craving. Sometimes, you know, in Buddhism, this idea we're supposed to attain nirvana or in the Pali Nibbana. And a lot of people don't even think about that. I, I don't actually think in those terms myself. I don't. Uh, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I'm just telling you that it's just not the way I'm, I'm approaching things. It's like there's this thing out there I've got to get. And it can, it doesn't have to, but it can have a sense of taking us out of our experience and i got to get whatever. Or it can feel remote and far away. But what I'm very interested in, what I am signed up for is, and this is just more adjectives of what Hari Das was talking about, how can I deepen in love, compassion, wisdom, wakefulness, freedom, peace, insight, non-reactivity? I'll use the word enlightenment. I like that word. I'm signed up for that. 
And why not take that as far as you can? Right? You don't have to make a struggle about it, but you know, I would I want to say for I'm guessing everyone here, you might have your own list of adjectives, but still be something like that, or you wouldn't be at a Dharma Center, because this is what this what's this about, what we're up to here. Right? So finding out what your adjectives are, and then take it, go for it. You don't have to hold back. Let's wake up as deeply as we can. Let's be as free and conscious as loving as we can. Right? Let's free the mind from craving as much as we can. Right? Not be led around by our likes and dislikes and that's just our whole life and we have no choice in, about it as much as we can. So, then, the whole question then, and this is, I'm going to just end in a few minutes, for what Bob will be pointing to is, how do, what will support us to deepen in that? What, what can we do? This is what we do, the practices, and, you know, what, what is going to help, help liberate our minds, open our hearts, quiet our minds? Right? What will support us to live in a way that creates more happiness for ourselves and others and less suffering for ourselves and others. Right? And let's do that. So I want to end with one last thing. And this is kind of a little segue into what Bob's doing. I'm starting to overlap a little bit. I don't know exactly what he'll say. but So the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the fourth noble truth, one way it's talked about, it's, it's uh, divided into, the eight, the eight pieces are divided into three groups in the Pali called Sila, Samadhi, Panya. The morality piece, which is the precepts we took, wise and skillful living. And the meditation part, if you will, the Samadhi, and the wisdom part. One of the ways that Dharma practice is, is talked about sometimes is, and some of you, you may or may not have heard this, the foundation is sometimes considered to be the morality, the, the wise and skillful actions and living. In other words, they'll say, well, you can't just start meditating if you're living your life in a way that's a mess or that's call, causing harm for others and you're not wise and careful with, how you, with your speech and you're causing harm and stealing and... Right, all that stuff. So, so that's considered foundational is the morality, the sila, the precepts. I would like to offer something. Um, this is not um, from the Buddha. It's my own. I may not <coughs> be the first person to say this, but um, I'm, it's just coming from me. So you take it. Just I'm giving you a little caveat there about it. There's something more foundational than sila. Self-compassion. We're all trying our best. Everybody here. Nobody here is not trying the best they can. No matter how much you might judge yourself. Some of us judge ourselves more than others. Everyone here is, by definition, is doing the best you can. Sincerely. Sometimes we're going to act and we're going to it'll show up in ways that we judge to be better. And sometimes, all right, we didn't do it so great. And it causes some suffering. That's when we need the self-compassion. Because we're trying our best, we're sincere, and we're human beings. And if we can come from that place of self-compassion, then we're not judging ourselves if we're not perfect on the precepts. We're just taking them on sincerely as training practices. And when we bump up against them and it doesn't go how we want, we learn and we move on. We don't judge ourselves when we get caught in, in craving. You know, because we're, you know, because by definition, until we're Buddhas ourselves, our minds are not, there's the fire is still happening of greed, hatred, and delusion. You're not doing anything wrong. So I just want to give you that encouragement um, 
And really, I would say to, if you're going to judge yourself, which <laughs> the Buddhist said, that's probably, uh, don't do that. <laughs> it's just a suffering generator. But since we get caught in it sometimes anyway, uh, a more deeply accurate and true measure is not by how good or bad you think you're doing something, but by your sincere intention. And I know Barry, Mary Grace uh, is bringing us back again to getting in touch with our intentions and our motivations. <coughs> you know, and it's important to reflect on the, that and your own good, beautiful, wholesome qualities which is not egotistical or arrogant, but that we stay in touch with it, then that will allow us then, <coughs> as we move forward, not to move forward out of aversion to ourselves, but out of a wholesome intention. And that will allow us to bring that ease and relaxation even to the places when, when we haven't let go of the craving. And then we find that place of non-clinging in relationship to ourselves. Uh, that ease, it's, anyway, that ease and relaxation is so important and that will support that. Non-clinging is a fruit of the path. Non-clinging also is the path of practice at the same time. It's the path and the fruit. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. power of our sincere intentions and motivations and aspirations be the cause and condition for awakening, for opening the hearts, quieting the minds, coming to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.